Chapter Two of the Woodlanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. The Woodlanders by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Two. In the room from which this cheerful blaze proceeded he beheld a girl seated on a willow chair and busily occupied by the light of the fire which was ample and of wood with a billhook in one hand and a leather glove much too large for her on the other she was making spars such as are used by thatchers with great rapidity she wore a leather apron for this purpose which was also much too large for her figure on her left hand lay a bundle of the straight, smooth sticks, called spargads, the raw material of her manufacture. On her right, a heap of chips and ends, the refuse, with which the fire was maintained. In front, a pile of the finished articles. To produce them, she took up each gad, looked critically at it from end to end, cut it to length, split it into four, and sharpened each of the quarters with dexterous blows which brought it to a triangular point precisely resembling that of a bayonet beside her in case she might require more light a brass candlestick stood on a little round table curiously formed of an old coffin stool with a deal top nailed on the white surface of the latter contrasting oddly with the black carved oak of the substructure the social position of the household in the past was almost as definitively shown by the presence of this article as that of an esquire or nobleman by his old helmets or shields it had been customary for every well-to-do villager whose tenure was by copy of court roll or in any way more permanent than that of the mere cotter, to keep a pair of these stools for the use of his own dead. But for the last generation or two, a feeling of cui bono had led to the discontinuance of the custom, and the stools were frequently made use of in the manner described. The young woman laid down the billhook for a moment and examined the palm of her right hand which unlike the other was ungloved and showed little hardness or roughness about it the palm was red and blistering as if this present occupation were not frequent enough with her to subdue it to what it worked in as with so many right hands born to manual labor there was nothing in its fundamental shape to bear out the physiological conventionalism that gradations of birth gentle or mean show themselves primarily in the form of this member nothing but a cast of the die of destiny had decided that the girl should handle the tool and the fingers which clasped the heavy ash haft might have skillfully guided the pencil or swept the string had they only been set to do it in good time her face had the usual fullness of expression which is developed by a life of solitude where the eyes of a multitude beat like waves upon a countenance 
they seem to wear away its individuality but in the still water of privacy every tentacle of feeling and sentiment shoots out in visible luxuriance to be interpreted as readily as a child's look by an intruder in years she was no more than nineteen or twenty but the necessity of taking thought at a too early period of life had forced the provisional curves of her childhood's face to a premature finality thus she had but little pretension to beauty save in one prominent particular her hair its abundance made it almost unmanageable its color was roughly speaking and as seen here by firelight brown but careful notice or an observation by day would have revealed that its true shade was a rare and beautiful approximation to chestnut on this one bright gift of time to the particular victim of his now before us the newcomer's eyes were fixed meanwhile the fingers of his right hand mechanically played over something sticking up from his waistcoat pocket the bows of a pair of scissors whose polish made them feebly responsive to the light within in her present beholder's mind the scene formed by the girlish spar-maker composed itself into a post-raphaelite picture of extremist quality wherein the girl's hair alone as the focus of observation was depicted with intensity and distinctness and her face shoulders hands and figure in general being a blurred mass of unimportant detail lost in haze and obscurity he hesitated no longer but tapped at the door and entered the young woman turned at the crunch of his boots on the sanded floor and exclaiming oh mr pericombe how you frighten me quite lost her color for a moment he replied you should shut your door then you'd hear folk open it i can't she said the chimney smokes so mr pericombe you look as unnatural out of your shop as a canary in a thorn hedge surely you have not come out here on my account for yes to have your answer about this he touched her head with his cane and she winced do you agree he continued it is necessary that i should know at once as the lady is soon going away and it takes time to make up don't press me it worries me i was in hopes you had thought no more of it i cannot part with it so there now look here marty said the barber sitting down on the coffin stool table how much do you get for making me spars hush father's upstairs awake and he don't know that i am doing his work well now tell me said the man more softly how much do you get eighteen pence a thousand she said reluctantly who are you making them for mr Melbury the timber dealer just below here and how many can you make in a day in a day and a half the night three bundles that's a thousand and a half two and threepence the barber paused well look here he continued 
with the remains of a calculation in his tone which calculation had been the reduction to figures of the probable monetary magnetism necessary to overpower the resistant force of her present purse and the woman's love of comeliness here's a sovereign a gold sovereign almost new he held it out between his finger and thumb that's as much as you'd earn in a week and a half at that rough man's work and it's yours for just letting me snip off what you've got too much of the girl's bosom moved a very little why can't the lady send to some other girl who don't value her hair not to me she exclaimed why simpleton because yours is the exact shade of her own and tis a shade you can't match by dying but you are not going to refuse me now i've come all the way from sheridan no purpose i say i won't sell it to you or anybody now listen and he drew up a little closer beside her the lady is very rich and won't be particular to a few shillings so i will advance to this on my own responsibility i'll make the one sovereign too rather than go back empty-handed no 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 she cried beginning to be much agitated you are attempting me mr Percombe. you go on like the devil to dr faustus in the penny book but i don't want your money and won't agree why did you come i said when you got me into your shop and urged me so much that i didn't mean to sell my hair the speaker was hot and stern marty now hearken the lady that wants it wants it badly and between you and me you'd better let her have it twill be bad for you if you don't bad for me who is she then the barber held his tongue and the girl repeated the question i am not at liberty to tell you and as she is going abroad soon it makes no difference who she is at all she wants it to go abroad we Herr Combe assented by a nod. The girl regarded him reflectively. Barbara Percombe, she said, I know who tis. Tis she at the house, Mrs. Charmont. That's my secret. However, if you agree to let me have it, I'll tell you in confidence. I'll certainly not let you have it unless you tell me the truth. It is Mrs. Charmont. The barber dropped his voice. Well? it is you sat in front of her in church the other day and she noticed how exactly your hair matched her own ever since then she's been hankering for it and at last decided to get it as she won't wear it till she goes off abroad she knows nobody will recognize the change i'm commissioned to get it for her and then it is to be made up i shouldn't have vamped all these miles for any less important employer now mind tis as much as my business with her is worth if it should be known that i've let out her name but honour between us two marty and you'll say nothing that would injure me i don't wish to tell upon her said marty coolly but my hair is my own and i'm going to keep it now that's not fair after what i've told you said the nettled barber you see marty as you are in the same parish and in one of her cottages and your father is ill and wouldn't like to turn out it would be as well to oblige her i say that as a friend but i won't press you to make up your mind to-night you'll be coming to market to-morrow 
I dare say, and you can call then. If you think it over, you'll be inclined to bring what I want. I know. I've nothing more to say, she answered. Her companion saw from her manner that it was useless to urge her further by speech. As you are a trusty young woman, he said, I'll put these sovereigns up here for ornament, that you may see how handsome they are. Bring the hair tomorrow, or return the sovereigns. He stuck them edgewise into the frame of a small mantel looking glass. I hope you'll bring it for your sake and mine. I should have thought she could have suited herself elsewhere, but as it's her fancy, it must be indulged if possible. If you cut it off yourself, mind how you do it so as to keep all the locks one way. He showed her how this was to be done. But I shan't, she replied with laconic indifference. I value my looks too much to spoil them. She wants my hair to get another lover with though if stories are true, she's broke the heart of many a noble gentleman already. Lord, it's wonderful how you guess things, Marty, said the barber. I've had it from them that know that there certainly is some foreign gentleman in her eye. However, mind what I ask. She's not going to get him through me. Percombe had retired as far as the door. He came back planted his cane on the coffin-stool, and looked her in the face. Marty South, he said with deliberate emphasis, you've got a lover yourself, and that's why you won't let it go. She reddened so intensely as to pass the mild blush that suffices to heighten beauty. She put the yellow leather glove on one hand, took up the hook with the other, and sat down doggedly to her work without turning her face to him again. He regarded her head for a moment, went to the door, and with one look back at her departed on his way homeward. Marty pursued her occupation for a few minutes. Then suddenly laying down the billhook, she jumped up and went to the back of the room, where she opened a door which disclosed a staircase, so whitely scrubbed that the grain of the wood was well-nigh sodden away by such cleansing. At the top she gently approached a bedroom, and without entering said, Father, do you want anything? A weak voice inside answered in the negative, adding, I shall be all right by tomorrow, if it were not for the tree. The tree again, always the tree. Oh, Father, don't worry so about that. You know it can do you no harm. Who have ye had talkin' to ye downstairs? A Sheraton man called. Nothing to trouble about, she said soothingly. Father, she went on, can Mrs. Charmon turn us out of our house if she's minded to? Turn us out? No. Nobody can turn us out till my poor soul is turned out of my body. Tis life-hold, like Ambrose Winterbourne's. But when my life drops, twill be hers, not till then. His words on this subject so far had been rational and firm enough, but now he lapsed into his moaning strain. And the tree will do it. That tree will soon be the death of me. Nonsense, you know better. How can it be? She refrained from further speech, 
and descended to the ground floor again. Thank heaven, then, she said to herself. What belongs to me I keep. End of chapter 2 Recording by James O'Connor Randolph, Massachusetts September 2009